0: He uses the attention of the healing to preach. He uses the attention of the healing of the lame man in order to preach in the temple. This is actually a very typical pattern that we find in Acts. That the signs and miracles were almost always accompanied by a sermon of some kind, or an exhortation, or an exposition of God's word, or some form of scripture, We see later, written in Romans chapter 10, there's this verse that says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we see very early on in the book of Acts, the early church prioritized, the apostles prioritized the preaching of God's word in order to make sense of and to apply these miracles in a way that people could own them by faith. And so this is how conversion took place. So preaching becomes the priority, which is why we're preaching a sermon on a sermon. And thankfully, he doesn't reference a sermon within it, although he sort of does, um, but we are. this is not going to get too much like Inception. We are just going to understand it as it is on its surface. So this week's outline is going to be sort of Bible study-like in how we approach the text. In that, I'm just going to walk through, I think, some of the building blocks of what Peter is doing, and then we're going to draw implications of the sermon. Uh, or You could call them applications as well. And so I want to just take you through this text and highlight some of the things that um, are going to bring it alive to us and that God has um, inspired Peter to not only say, but for Luke to record. And so the first thing we need to notice about this sermon that Peter preaches is that Israel is the audience. That's very important. Because depending on which audience the apostles were speaking to, uh, it really changed their approach. It really changed how they applied and presented the gospel. This is Israel. These are God's historic people who had the temple. This is, in fact, in the temple. They had God's commands. They had a history. They knew the God of history, um, the one true God. And yet they are the audience of this gospel message. We see that right at the beginning. The the man who was healed is clinging to Peter and John, and all the people were astounded, and they ran together. So this kerfuffle takes place, and they ran to Peter and John. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. And so he uses the attention, he addresses the people who have gathered, and he preaches to them. Now, the first thing he says is, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? So he addresses specifically... Israel, the nation of Israel, who is, I mean, as we saw last week, the gospel's first presentation happens in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. A lot of Christ's preaching centered around the temple. What would become of the temple? The the reference to the new temple being his body. He referenced the destruction of the temple. The whole seedbed of Christianity is Jerusalem, the temple, Judaism itself. And so Israel is this first audience. The whole Christian story, the the beginning of it, takes place in the geographic region of Israel and its surrounding um, towns and villages and, and, and so forth. And so Peter says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder as if by our own power we have made this man walk? And then in verse 13 he says, The God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac... The God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. And so that reference there is very important. He uses the familiar title of God to Israel to explain what's going on with the miracle. In other words, Israel. This is not some offshoot random act of some powerful men. This is the same God that you have been worshiping for thousands of years. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is your God who's doing this work. He talks about glorifying Christ. But first we need to recognize that he's using this very familiar title for Israel. He says, as if it might be our own power. Uh, One of man's worst tendencies, and we read about it in Psalm 118 to open. One of man's worst tendencies is to put confidence in man rather than God. We just read about that, didn't we? It's better to put your trust in God than in princes. And so... The natural tendency of Israel is to gather around Peter and say, wow, you're so. this is amazing what power you have. And he says, you would be foolish to think that it's because of me. It's your God who did this. It's your God. This is something that you should understand, Israel. And one of the things I think that we saw as a pattern through the Gospel of John is that one of Israel's big problems was the closeness of God that Jesus brought. They were very uncomfortable with the idea of God being among them. Israel, throughout its history, had always had a mediator of some kind. They would have a prophet or a judge or a king, somebody who stood between them and God. So they never really had to deal with God face-to-face, close up. It's more comfortable with God off in some distant place where we can't see. And when Christ brings that close, it can become very offensive because he exposes us and he demands worship in a way that the receiver cannot hide. And so Israel was always very uncomfortable, the leaders especially, with this God among them. Jesus particularly said, especially, um, there's this passage in Luke 10, 9, where he sends out his disciples and he says, Heal the sick. And when that happens, the kingdom of God has come near. Say that to people. Say God's kingdom has come near. When you heal them. And so there's this real sense that God is is invading the personal space of humanity if we're entitled to such a thing. So there's a closeness of this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which Israel had once thought of as being distant, as being off, as being sort of a mediated power. And then we have Christ himself come claiming to be the Son of God uh, himself. And as we know, Christ was crucified on account of his claims. And then Peter says that this God glorified his servant whom you delivered over to Pilate. In other words, this savior, this carpenter, this itinerant preacher from Nazareth has now been glorified by your God. That's very important because what Peter is saying is that the power that we've had to heal this man comes through the guy that you thought was a blasphemer. It has come through the guy that you rejected and you said has no place and you crucified and put to death. Your God has glorified him. So if you claim to worship God and yet reject Jesus Christ, he's saying you are not on the side of God. You are not on God's team because God has glorified this son, this savior. He uses the word servant. Jesus. The word servant is a very particular Old Testament title which pertained to the Messiah. When Israel would read through their Bible and see, you know, my servant, in Isaiah 53 we see the servant. We also see it in Second uh, Samuel, I believe, where it talks about um, God's servant reigning and God's servant being put on a throne. This is the title for the Messiah. And so Peter is saying, make no mistake, this Christ whom you crucified is that Messiah. He is that figure that you were waiting for throughout the Old Testament. And so what Peter does is he anchors the miracle of the man in the reality of Israel's God, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that this is not something broken off from your God, this is your God working in history now through the name and power of Jesus Christ, which has been made known. So Israel is this audience. They are the ones with the history of God. They know, they should know, and be familiar with these phrases and these titles. And Peter is reminding them. And an important reminding work comes next. The next thing that Peter points out is that Israel is also guilty. He points out their guilt. Interestingly, a man was just healed. You would think that Peter now would jump to a sermon on healing, right? I mean, God just did it. Wouldn't this be a fantastic opportunity to say, now everybody else, come on down who wants to get healed. Is something broken in your life? Do you have a relationship that needs fixing? Do you have a sickness? Well, come on down because God's vending machine is open. Come on down for a healing. He doesn't do that at all. He does not jump to the blessing and richness and refreshment of God yet. He uses the attention of the healing to bring about this message, this gospel message. But the gospel message does not get to the healing yet. He highlights Israel's guilt. He highlights Israel's guilt. This is important because they had God's law. They believed that they were defending God. They believed that they were worshiping God by killing Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, if he's threatening God's authority, well, we need to put him to death. Just like the Old Testament law says, if one blasphemes, put him to death. And so Israel thought they were worshiping God. And yet, what did they do? They did the opposite. They committed an awful miscarriage of justice. And Peter points that out. You delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So he's saying, your ruler decided to release Jesus and you denied him. You denied Jesus the the simple earthly justice that was rightfully his. You denied the Holy and Righteous One and you asked for a murderer to be granted for you. So do you see how he contrasts these two characters? You denied the Holy and Righteous One, the Son of God, and in exchange you asked for a murderer. On a very basic level, this is just terrible miscarriage of justice. This is an awful uh, misapplication of the law. And Israel, of all people, should know justice. I mean, they should be the ones saying, we can recognize righteousness and evil very clearly. Let the evil one stand trial and let the innocent one go. That's basic, especially, especially you know, now in our Western world where we expect basic justice. Israel could not even do that. Peter highlights their guilt. He highlights their failure. And he, he highlights the magnitude and the irony of their error. He says, you killed the author of life. You killed the author of life. John chapter 1 says that uh, Jesus was there in the beginning. He was the word. He says, John says, all things were created through him. There's not anything made that was not made through Christ. Jesus himself is the author of life. He's saying this was God himself. Present with God the Father at the very beginning. This is the deity, the, the, the one true God among you, You denied, and you asked for a murderer in his place. He highlights their guilt. So amazingly, not only have they sinned against basic justice, they have failed on a very practical level. Peter is saying they've also opposed themselves against God. They've not just failed to carry out justice, but they've set themselves against God. God and his servant by doing this. This was not just any innocent man that they denied justice to. They cried out for the crucifixion of the Son of God. They set themselves up point blank against the God that they claimed to worship. This would be pretty, uh, a pretty tense atmosphere, I would think, in this here sermon. Pretty tense atmosphere, Peter is not afraid to highlight their guilt and their failure and their animosity toward God. And he says that God had glorified his servant. This is Peter's claim that God not only sent Christ, but validated his life. So every word that Christ ever spoke, every uh, deed that he ever performed, every interaction he ever had, God approved of. God accepted, God glorified. And so even when Jesus died as a substitutionary death for us, for sinners, even in that, God said, I accept. And God raised him back to life and it vindicated everything Jesus had ever done in his ministry. God glorified, that's what it means. And, and, and we as Christians, we await glorification. We know that one day glorification will come in full. But what Peter is saying is that Christ is already there. Christ is already glorified in the presence of God, living what we all hope in one day to live. And so in his glorified state, what he's saying is that this Savior is not just a Savior whose tomb we go to listen and worship at his, his grave site. He's saying that now in his glorified state, he is performing these powerful miracles. It is through Christ who was once dead and now alive who is performing this amazing work. This is the power of the Christian faith. It's that it's rooted in a current reality of Jesus' work and mission. It's not rooted in the memory of Jesus. It's not rooted in the teachings of Jesus. It's rooted in the person of Christ who is alive now. This is integral to the gospel. We do not call people to believe in our old ancient system as being better than somebody else's old ancient system. Our faith rests in the risen Savior, who is currently at work, and we're going to get a lot more into that um, as Peter develops this message. But he points out that that it is their God who's at work. He points out that they have opposed themselves to God and that they are guilty. And I do want to point something else out out as well about this man. And in his name, by faith in his name, verse 16, has made this man strong whom you see and know. In the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And and so we wonder, you know, where does faith come in with healing? Does God heal people who don't have faith in him? Um, What Peter is saying here is that this man possessed faith in Christ. It doesn't say that specifically in the healing aspect of this miracle, but Peter goes about, and it's not recorded for us, but Peter later says here, it's faith through Jesus that has made this man well. This man put his trust in Christ. Okay, this isn't kind of just like, well, the work of Jesus is just when people get healthy, well, they're sort of Christians. You have to put your faith in Christ, and it's evidence of that that Jesus has healed this man. The other amazing thing is that Peter says, He's made this man healthy in the presence of you all. That's in verse 16. You've seen it. Peter also has claimed earlier in his healing of man. he says, we are witnesses to this reality. We are witnesses to the risen Savior. We saw him not only die, but we have seen him since. We are witnesses to this. And so far as I can tell, there's no adequate rebuttal all throughout Scripture. There's a lot of opposition, but there's no good rebuttal for the witness of this truth. The unbelieving Jews didn't say, oh, that man was never healed because it happened in public. And so Peter is continually attesting to his witness and calling them to also witness the work of God. He's saying this happened before your very eyes. What are you going to do about it? Nobody had a rebuttal for the work of Christ. Peter's drawing attention to that. Verse 17, now we come to the demand... And the command of the gospel. The command of the gospel. So Peter calls out their heinous sin. um, Perhaps the most tragic sin ever committed in human history. He points out their sin and their failure. And Peter acknowledges a profound reality. I know, brothers, that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. I know that you acted in ignorance. This is a pastoral, and I would even say a priestly recognition and sympathy that Peter has with these people. He doesn't just slam their sin on top of them and say, how could you? You are so wicked. In a priestly way, he acknowledges their ignorance. He says, I know that you did this without the Holy Spirit's guidance. I know that you did this ignorant of God's truth. You didn't understand the scriptures the way you should have. You totally blew it, but you were ignorant. This is beautiful because it recognizes the default position of everyone ever. And as we think about people and as we look at people's lives and we're so tempted to judge and become frustrated and we want to slam their sin down on them, people who don't have Christ are acting in ignorance. They don't know the way. When, when God sent Jonah to Nineveh, He said, they are a people who don't know their right hand from their left hand. They're in darkness. They need light. They need me. They need revelation. They're ignorant. Peter recognizes that that we all act from pride. We all act from foolishness. We all act from evil, hatred, and all the other things that make us make decisions. Without the regenerating power of the Spirit, we are ignorant, and so is everybody. We're bound to sin. Peter even himself knows his own failures, right? And I don't think he's insecure about it because he's calling these people out hardcore on their sin. But he knows that he's committed the same failures. He's he's denied Christ. He's stuck his foot in his mouth. He cut off the servant's ear in the garden. I mean, Peter has not been squeaky clean as a Christian. But he knows Jesus' restoration. He has met with Christ personally. Christ reinstated him, forgave him, and commissioned him again. Peter's not afraid of his own failures being exposed because he's aware of them and knows that the only way forward for Israel is also to recognize their guilt. It's amazing here because he says, You acted in ignorance, but what God foretold by the mouth of of all the prophets that Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. He thus fulfilled, so you brothers acted in ignorance and you delivered him over to be crucified, and yet this is exactly what God had planned. He says when he says through the prophets, he's talking about the totality of the Old Testament scripture. The scrolls that they had in that very temple could be unrolled and you could find the places where God had foretold that his servant would suffer. It was not to be a servant who would come in and conquer through victory uh, of military fashion or political fashion. He would be a servant who would suffer. He's saying, you acted ignorantly, and yet this is exactly what God had foretold. I was studying in the, in the NIV this week, and the NIV actually says, this is how God fulfilled his promise. He fulfilled it using your ignorance. This should give us great comfort, that God is not a reactive God. There's a word that we use for that, and it's called providence, which is, might not strike a chord with you at all, but what it means is that there is no molecule of activity, failure or successful, that God does not weave into his plan to bring about the good that he has planned. Romans chapter 8 says it another way, that all things work together for good for those who love God. This is evidence of that. Even in their ignorance, when they killed the Son of God, the author of life, God says, this is how he's bringing about his plan. He's used your ignorance. He has used your sin and your pride and your hatred to bring about the gospel. Friends, This should never, Romans chapter 6 also says, should his grace cause us to sin more? No. Don't use this as, well, then it doesn't really matter if I sin. But friends, this should eliminate regret and guilt from our lives. Of course you've blown it. Of course I've blown it. They did the worst thing that you could have ever done. And yet Peter says, that's how God is fulfilling his plan. He's using your ignorance to bring about his glory. And so we should trust and and, and give thanks to a God who is powerful enough to use the worst things about our lives, the worst failures we've ever committed. God is powerful enough to use them to bring about good. The best thing that any other religion can say is that, well, you know, at least it's in the past. Or hopefully everything happens for a reason in some vague way. But God actually says it's not just that it happened and you have to live with it. It's actually a piece of my plan. I'm actually using your failure and your garbage to bring about my plan. So friends, don't have regret. Don't look back and say, if only this or that, and hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh, but there's two kinds of sorrow. First or Second Corinthians says that there's two kinds of sorrow. You can look back on your sin with worldly sorrow, and maybe not even your sin, but others' sin, and just say, that, that just, that's the worst because it hurts so much. It's worldly sorrow. It, it's, it's maybe sorry because you got caught, or it's sorry that you lost your job. You're sorry in some way because of your sin, because it just cost you. That's the kind of sorrow that just leads to death. But there's another kind of sorrow, and it's sorrow that leads to life. It's to look back on your failure and say, only God can save me. That's the kind of sorrow that leads us to repentance. And that's the kind of sorrow that Peter is drumming up in them. He's pastorally pointing them to their failure, not so that they'll wallow in guilt and and self-loathing, but so that they will reach out to the Savior. So that in their sorrow, they will cling on to the only hope that they could possibly have. Because, this is right in our text although God literally used their sin to bring about His plan, they are still responsible for it. They are still responsible. He says, what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that this Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. So, God is just fulfilling His plan in your ignorance. Verse 19, repent therefore. Repent therefore. This does not let you off the hook just because God used it. Boy, wouldn't that make christianity a really ugly faith if we could just say well god uses my sin so why should i say sorry for it no i don't think anyone would want to join that religion but instead peter says god used it for his glory he used it to bring about his plan he says therefore repent therefore because brought, god has brought about his plan and he's bringing about redemption therefore repent therefore turn away from your sin therefore acknowledge your failure He fulfilled it. And so turn back, repent, that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And so when he, when he tells them to repent, he says that God is promising to blot out your sin and to bring refreshing from his very presence. This word, uh, blotting out, is a word that, it, that, that envisions and in pictures ink being wiped from a page to blot out your sin, literally to erase its record. Colossians 2.14, I want to read for you. It speaks exactly in those terms. What did God achieve through Jesus Christ on behalf of his people? Colossians 2.14 says, By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is the record that is being blotted out on your behalf through your repentance. Some of us are afraid to repent because we think it just further highlights our sin. And sometimes when we go to say sorry to somebody instead of forgiving us, they say, they use it for more squashing. They use it for more uh, guilt laying, right? Sometimes it's hard. You don't want to repent because it's like, well, then I'm admitting my sin. And then what if I'm crushed again? But in, in the scriptures, when we repent to God, he does not hold it over our head. He does not say, yeah, absolutely. And don't forget about this. When we repent, it says that he blots out our sin. He cancels the record of debt. He wipes it away like it never existed. He eliminates what you owe him because of your sin. He cancels out the certificate of debt. In other words, your record is clean. You are at even par with God. You do not owe him anything despite your terrible sin against him. Israel knew. They understood sin perfectly something that we kind of have to even explain to our culture a little bit. I think the concept of sin has been sort of diluted and and lost in our culture, but Israel understood it perfectly. You know why? Because they had the priestly system. Again, this morning we we read, let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Um, uh, The house of Aaron was the priestly house. Those who would sacrifice the animals, take the blood, sprinkle it on the curtain of the holy place, and by this... Blood of animals, sacrificed for themselves and for the people, would go into the presence of God to offer incense, to worship God. It had to be done year after year after year. It was a reminder of sin, but it never took away their sin. Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away for sin, can never atone for sin. Your sin is still with you if all you have is animal sacrifice. Israel understood that sin was a terrible and clingy problem. It wasn't just going to go away with one giant sacrifice of a bull. It couldn't cleanse your conscience. And yet, what is Peter offering to Israel here? Repent, and your sin will be blotted out. It'll be erased. It'll be wiped away forever. It'll bring refreshment. And so what I'd like you to do, if you have a pen, if you like to write in your Bible or just write in your notes, circle the word repent. This is for you, Dustin, by the way, wherever you are. Circle the word repent, and then circle the word refreshing and draw a line between them. We have got to get this in the church. We have got to understand this. We have got to embrace this. That repentance should not lead to guilt. With God in charge and with the work that He has done in Christ, repentance brings refreshment. So often we hold on. We don't want to admit our guilt. Sometimes before God, sometimes before people, we hang on to it because we are afraid of what it will feel like to admit our guilt. We're afraid of the feeling of the consequence of those sins. We're afraid of the shame that it will bring with the person that we're confessing to or repenting to. We're afraid of that that terrible feeling. Circle repentance and refreshment. They're connected. He says, repent so that refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. In the Bible, repentance, sorrow over sin that leads to repentance brings life. It brings life. It does not bring death. We do not go and sacrifice an animal and wallow in the guilt of our sin. We repent and we're given freedom. We repent and we're given refreshment. This is what he's saying to Israel who knew the sacrificial system. They knew what guilt felt like. For thousands of years, their sin was never atoned for until Christ came. And he's saying, now you can have refreshment from the presence of the Lord. Again, it's through Christ that this refreshment comes. It's not through political reform or military victory which is actually proof in its it's proof in our text. We see that because it says that he's on a heavenly throne right now. So there's a twofold fruit of this gospel repentance. Number 1 is that it provides finality on the question of guiltiness before God. Gospel rep- repentance puts a period at the end of the sentence discussing guilt before God. Your sin will be wiped away. Blotted out, gone, canceled through repentance. Number two, it will bring about positive and restorative conditions in the wake of Jesus' reign in your life. Refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. Acts 2.32, which we just looked at a few weeks ago, Peter gives a similar message and he says, repent and you will be given the Holy Spirit. In this one, in a parallel exhortation, he says, repent and times of refreshing will come. So these are, these are kind of co-offerings from God. Repent and the Spirit will come into your life and fill your soul and your heart and your mind with Him. And also repent and times of refreshing will come. And so our possession of the Holy Spirit through repentance is going in some way to bring about this refreshment. Jesus said in John 7, 38, He said, Whoever believes in me out of, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water not just in. You see that? Whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so your repentance and your refreshment in the Lord will bring refreshment to others. As Christ reigns in your life and you by wisdom apply his law, refreshment will flow from your life to others. You will be a blessing to other people. Not all the time. You'll still mess up. You'll still make people mad sometimes. But but God from your heart will give his living water to others. And so Peter highlights their guilt and he offers them repentance. And he says this curious little phrase that I can't pass over without explaining it. And it sort of has an eschatological note to it, which means like a discussion of Christ's return and what's going on with that sort of end times. Um, but I want you to understand this if you're curious about it. He says... Refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. That's verse 20, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring uh, all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So then he's saying, okay, so repent so that God will send his Christ to you, Jesus, who heaven has for now, but he will come back and restore things. So Peter is making this kind of explicitly eschatological all of a sudden. In other words, he's making explicitly about like what the long-term plan is. What the long-term plan is about this. And here's how best I can understand that. Because hasn't Christ already come? Like, what's the deal with like repent so that the Christ may be sent to you? He already was sent and he actually just went up to heaven like a matter of a couple of weeks ago maybe? I don't even know. I mean, he just left. So why is Peter promising the return of Christ? Well... For Israel, we have to remember that the Messiah, the visions of the Messiah was to provide safety, freedom from their enemies, worship God without fear of the enemy, which we looked at on Christmas Eve, Uh, secure borders, uh, plentiful fruit and provision, and it was a vision of a really secure, prosperous kingdom. And in some senses, that wasn't fully delivered in an earthly sense to Israel at that time. And so in their minds, they're kind of thinking, well, what is the Messiah actually supposed to do? And this is partly why they didn't recognize him was because they didn't receive the reality that the kingdom was not purely an earthly kingdom. It was not from the earth. It was on the earth, but not from the earth. And so there's this sense where the kingdom has come, but it's not yet fully here. That's something that we, we kind of have to live with as Christians today, that the kingdom is here, it is near, it has come, but it's not fully yet here. And and Peter makes that explicit when he says, heaven must receive until the appointed time where he brings about the full restoration. And so I think we can look at these terms, refreshment and restoration, as different degrees of the same plan. Refreshment is the giving of the Holy Spirit. It's the ability for us to follow God's law and and to do good on the earth to bring about his kingdom, to to love the poor and to love the downcast and to offer the gospel and that the Holy Spirit would keep us from sin. These are the times of refreshing that are right now. The refreshment is like the appetizer to the meal, which is the restoration of all things. The final restoration that Israel was looking for, where anyone who denies God will be destroyed. There'll be no presence of evil. There'll be no more yin and yang. There'll be no more conflict of good and evil. Evil will be gone in the final restoration, as will death, dying, sadness, anything to do with sin will be gone. And so we are still awaiting that time of restoration. This is what I mean by Peter making this eschatological. What is the timing of all of this? Well, right now, we're in the presence of a refreshing time. That the Spirit is now among God's people But then there's this note that heaven will keep him for a time. There's a specific reference to time there. Heaven will receive, verse 21, until the time of restoration for all the things about which God spoke in the prophets. And so when that time is full, 1 Corinthians 15 mentions this as well, that he is in heaven right now as we are preaching and praying this morning. Jesus is in heaven reigning from his throne. And the Bible tells us that he is subjecting all things under his feet. But not all things are subject to him yet. Full restoration is not yet, but Christ is gathering his enemies under his feet. And one day, the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. So even God's own people will no longer face the enemy of death in this kingdom. It will be an eternal kingdom. That restoration, we are still waiting for. But what is this about his return? Repent so that Christ may, uh, God may send his Christ to you. Hebrews tells us that Christ is coming a second time, not to deal with sin, not to hang on a cross the first time, like the Lamb of God taking away our sin, but to judge, to raise the dead, to give final judgment, and to bring about final restoration. That is Christ's second coming. We all believe that Christ is coming a second time, But Israel has a particular role. and This is where I'm going with this. Israel has a particular role in that timing. This is why this instruction came particularly to Israel. Repent so that God may send his Christ to you who is Jesus. Romans 11 invites us into this mystery. Paul says in Romans 11, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts. But this will only last until the full number of Gentiles have come to Christ. Then all Israel will be saved, Paul goes on to say. In other words, when you see a great spiritual revival among national Israel, as in blood-born Jews, when you see a revival to faith in Christ, we will know that the completion of the gospel work to all nations has been completed. That tells us that the work of God is pretty much finished. We will see revival in Israel, then Christ will return. This is why when Peter says to them, repent, so that God may send his Christ, what he's saying is that when Israel repents en masse, when Israel repents largely as a nation to Christ, then will the Christ come again. Now, Peter didn't know at that time when he said that, that 2,000 more years at least of human history would take place. I don't think he fully understood the magnitude of all nations, tribes, and tongues believing. He was just preaching, repent now so that Christ can come back. But the gospel is still going out to nations, tribes, and tongues. And so Christ is still in heaven ruling and reigning until the time when his gospel covers the whole earth. As the Old Testament says, that the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Jesus is still waiting, but nonetheless, the command is there to Israel. Repent so that Christ may come. Repent so that Christ may come. This is still the message to Israel who has not accepted her Messiah. With that, we want to look forward to to saying Judaism points to Christianity. He mentions Moses here, and he says that uh, Moses said "The God... That the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers that you should listen to him in whatever he tells you. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses is saying to Israel, a new prophet will come up. Remember, this is Israel is the audience of this, of this sermon. And so he's calling them to believe what they have always believed. Remember how you were hoping in Moses that a new prophet would come? And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, it specifically says that they asked for a prophet who was not like the fire. The fire they're referring to is from Exodus chapter 20, when God gave the law and a thick cloud of smoke surrounded the mountain. They could not approach the mountain. When God gave his law, the holiness was such that they were not even to touch the mountain. This is terrifying if you're an Israelite. You're like, I want to deal with God, but this is a little bit scary. And so they specifically asked for a prophet who would not be like an unapproachable fire, a consuming fire. And so who did God send? He sent a baby who would become an unattractive carpenter, who would wander the streets of Galilee and Jerusalem in sandals. Isaiah says that his form was not much that we should look on him. God sent... His word, his prophet wrapped in flesh. His own word wrapped in flesh. This was the answer to Israel's prayer in Deuteronomy 18. This is the prophet they asked for. Jesus Christ himself and his ministry was not a consuming fire. He was lowly and humble and he did not break off a broken reed. He did not snuff out a smoldering wick. He cared for the poor and the downtrodden and the lost and he scooped them up. And he taught about the kingdom. God sent the Christ, the final word. So at Mount Sinai, we have the commandments given. We have an all-consuming fire. We have a dark, thick smoke, the law given. And then the next prophet that Israel asked for would be the law keeper. Would be the law keeper who would, by his work, bring us into the presence of this consuming fire, of this great God, And he says that there's a high responsibility from hearing from God. It shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. He's quoting Old Testament law here. In that same passage, God assures Israel when they say, how will we know who this prophet is? How will we know? He says to them, if the word that they speak does not come to pass, then don't be alarmed. Yet when we look at the life of Christ, what he's saying is that Israel needs to recognize God has vindicated and validated everything Jesus ever did. Jesus is that prophet. He is that prophet. He's the final and singular word from God. And so what Peter is saying to them is if if you thought ignoring a prophet was a bad choice, ignoring Jesus Christ is fatal. You will be cut off from your people. Ignoring Jesus Christ is fatal. What Peter also says is that all the prophets looked forward to these days. In verse 24, they all spoke from Samuel to those who came after him. They proclaimed these days. So Israel, read your Bible. This is what it's all about. Christ resurrected, reigning now, bringing refreshment. This is all what your faith was about. Christ did not come and fork God's salvation plan into two. Like now, he's got Christians and Jews, and he's got a different plan for each one. The days of the church, the days of grace, are what the Old Testament promised. And he talks about the, the blessing to Abraham, which is the marquee promise of all of Israel. In your sons, uh, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. The blessing that God is giving Israel now is the chance to repent. When he spoke to Abraham, in you all the nations will be blessed. What is that blessing? It's the hearing of God's word. It's the hearing of the gospel and the chance to repent It's the chance to turn to God. And so God is fulfilling his promise to Israel. He offered them salvation before he did the Gentiles. Do you see how God is so kind? Although although salvation in the gospel went to all nations, they were the first to know. Jesus appeared first to them in their towns, to their people, in the synagogues, in the temple. Jesus first came to his people. John chapter 1 again says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Romans chapter 2, Paul says, there will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first, then the Gentile. God kept his promise to Israel. He sent them salvation. He offered them the chance to believe and repent and be saved and be refreshed. To be refreshed. And now they have been partially hardened so that we undeserving Gentiles could believe. We do not, we do not earn anything with God Our forefathers did not follow him. We are heirs of the gospel because of grace, because we've been grafted in. So what are our three implications? So Peter preaches this message of refreshment and repentance to Israel, saying, in Christ will you be blessed. Number one implication, the gospel is for sinful people. Uh, Notice that this message comes when the people gather around Peter. The gospel is for real people with real problems. He notes their sin, but he assures them with God's hope. The gospel is not an abstract set of propositions or acknowledgements, but it's the real interaction between a real God and real people. The gospel is for those sinful people. Despite their awful sin, the gospel still goes to them first. The people who sinned by By crucifying Christ, the gospel went to them. And that draws us to our second implication is that the gospel is grace. It is jaw-dropping that Peter can say that they killed the author of life, so therefore repent and turn to God. They killed God's son. And he says, you know what you need to do? You need to turn back to God and repent. If, if God were a God of our own imaginations, this sermon would have read a lot more like, you killed God's son, and so it's a matter of time before he will obliterate you. But the instruction is, you killed his son, therefore you need to turn to him. Why would anybody expect anything but wrath when they turn to God after committing the most evil sin they possibly could have? Why would you expect anything but total wrath Sometimes my kids, when I catch them disobeying and I ask them not to go past there in the yard or something and I go out and I say, come back in the house and they know exactly why and there's this grief that comes over them. Like, daddy's gonna discipline us and and we know we disobeyed and sometimes they do get disciplined but that's what it's like. That's what it should be like for us when we think of turning to God. When we look at our sinful lives and we think of turning to God, this is why so many people don't because they don't understand the gospel of grace. That God knows every sin already and through repentance, we can be made right with him. He'll actually accept us. Refreshment is promised to God's people through Christ. God is under no obligation to bless his people as he does, to give the gift of the Holy Spirit. The only obligation God has is to punish sin. And for those who believe, he did that in Christ. And so the gospel is grace first to Israel. If any, if, any, if any nation should have been wiped from the earth, this is not anti-Semitism. If any nation should have been wiped from the earth, it's the nation who condemned the Son of God. Now, the only reason we didn't do it was because we didn't have the opportunity to. I, I don't want to put Israel in some unique category. We all would have done it. I cringe to think of myself in Jesus' time because I would have been just like the Pharisees. I wouldn't have liked Jesus challenging my authority. I I would have been the first to cry out, crucify him. So I thank God that I did not live in that time. But if there's ever a nation where God's wrath could have come down and say, you killed my son, it would have been Israel. And yet God extends his grace to Israel. If he will do it to them, he will do it for us. He continues to love and be faithful to Israel through faith in Christ. Paul also says in that chapter in Romans, he says, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. Paul says, because I'm a Jew and God has accepted me in Christ. And number three, the gospel is demanding. The gospel is demanding. and The same source of our hope and our confidence is also the source of our fear. That Christ is is the only prophet, he's the only Messiah and he's also the only God. The gospel is very narrow. The gospel is demanding. The gospel commands belief it is not one of many options to be weighed the gospel is the path of life and it is the only hope for the lost god's ways have continued on it says that if you ignore the prophet you shall be destroyed from the people that is no less true in christ Christ is God's prophet, he is God's son, he is God's servant, he is God himself. If you ignore this savior, you will be destroyed from the people. There is no hope for those who reject the gospel. And so men and women must believe, they must repent, and they will be saved and refreshed. There is an expectation not of wrath, but of refreshment for those who would repent.